Um, if you could, turn to Exodus 5. And I'm going to do something a little um, different this morning. I kind of want to go to the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament for a while. As you're turning to Exodus 5, go ahead and turn there. Um, I came across a passage that I wanted to just jump into this morning and start off this morning with. This just be an introduction to our passage that we're going to go over in the Old Testament this morning. So Exodus 5, if you can turn there. Um, we did just recently with the high schoolers a study from in Revelations chapters 1 to 3, the seven churches of Revelation. It was an awesome study. But one of the passages just really hit me hard. Um, and, and this is where I want to start. It's actually Revelations 1.12. Just stay in Exodus and listen to, to this passage as I read it. John the Apostle is writing, and he says this, Then I, John, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a terrifying Jesus. Our culture has very little reverence for God anymore. If you ask the average person that claims to be a Christian or claims to believe in some sort of God, is God loving? They will say yes, most likely. But if you ask, is God sovereign? Is God Lord of your life? You probably find some pushback. But if you take it a step further and ask, is God wrathful? They'll probably get upset with you. We as a culture have lost a reverence for God as Lord. Today we look at Jesus as something like a big teddy bear in the sky that if you need a hug, he's there for you. God is love. The Bible says this. But God is also holy. You know how many times the Bible says God is love? We hear this all the time. You hear it in worship. You hear it everywhere. He is love. And it only needs to say it once. But how many times it says it? Around four times. How many times does the Bible say God is Lord? Thousands. Again, he only needs to say it once, but I think it shows us what we need to hear more often. I looked up the word love in the, in the English Bible in different translations, and, and it's about average that the word love is used 500 times, which is a lot of times in the Bible. But I looked up the word Lord over 8,000 times. By far the most used noun. It competes with the word a. God is love, but God is also Lord. I mean, listen to the description of Jesus. His hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His voice was like the roar of many waters. 
His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. You're not going to give this Jesus a hug. You can't even look at this Jesus. This is a terrifying Jesus. And I know this is a terrifying Jesus because of John's reaction. A man that was an apostle. And the inner three, Jesus' closest friends... In John's uh, gospel, he's called the disciple that Jesus loved. He's, he's 90 years old at this point and has faithfully served and worshipped Jesus for most of his life through persecution, through imprisonment, through physical harm. And his reaction was this in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead in fear and terror. This is a holy, glorious, yes, wrathful, powerful, and just God. But, second part of verse 17 starts with, But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. That's the love of God. Jesus had the authority, the power, and the right to destroy John. But he gives him mercy and grace by dying for him on the cross. That's love. Here's the point. We cannot truly understand the love of God without understanding the holiness, the justice, the wrath, the glory, and the power of God. It's in the contrast that God's love is amazing. And this week, we're going to look at one of the most amazing displays of God's glory and power ever witnessed by man. And my hope is through it, we see God's love more clearly. So, if you haven't turned to Exodus 5, please do, starting in verse 1. As we get there, I just want to kind of give you a review of, of where we're at. Abraham, in Genesis, was promised a land, a great nation, and a blessing. We follow Abraham as he had Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, which will become the 12 tribes of Israel. We followed all of these. And my question for the high schoolers has been for the last couple weeks, how do you take 12 sons and make them into a great nation? Well, you send them to Egypt and let Egypt protect them for 400 years as they multiply and multiply and multiply. So they can grow. Exodus 1.7 says this, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. They became a, a great nation, but they were thrown into slavery in Egypt. And so last week we saw the call of Moses to go to Pharaoh and go to Israel and lead Israel out. Of Egypt out of slavery. And that brings us to Exodus 5, verse 1. Read with me. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go, that God has asked him to let Israel go to worship him in the worship God in the desert. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. 
Who is the Lord? We read that and go, wow. Talk about no reverence for God. But we need to understand this fits into into Pharaoh's worldview. It's a false worldview, but it fits into how he views the world. And there was no separation of church and state until America was born, for the most part. Religion and government went hand in hand from ancient times. The gods were directly involved, at least it was thought that the gods were directly involved in government. If government was successful, it was because the gods were happy with you. If government, um, if your country was powerful, it was thought it was because your country's gods were powerful. We know this is a false worldview, but this is what the pharaoh how the Pharaoh saw. Now think about this. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And here comes Israel, this slave nation, and the God of this slave nation saying, let my people go. So Pharaoh says, no. We'll not let your people go. Who is this Lord? Who is this Yahweh? Look at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Here's the main point of this passage, this whole entire passage. And the main point, hopefully, of this sermon is God is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the I am. And God is going to display his lordship to the world to the point that we're talking about it today. Skip over to chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. All this means is, is Moses is going to speak for God, and and Aaron's going to speak for Moses. The two are going to be ambassadors for God. Verse 2, you, this is being Moses, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is going to be a theme throughout the, um, the next few chapters. And this is a hard teaching. We honestly could spend a whole sermon on this. And I debated about spending a ton of time on God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But I just want to say this. And if you just trust me on this, um, the Bible is very clear on two things. One, this is a statement of sovereignty by God. That God is in control even in Pharaoh and in Pharaoh's heart. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Two, Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. As we go through this passage, you'll see it both. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, and you'll see Pharaoh has hardened his own heart. And those two things go hand in hand. Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, therefore Pharaoh is responsible for the hardening of his heart. I know there's tension there. I'm asking you this morning just to live in that tension. There's no easy explanation to this. The Bible claims both. 
If you have questions about that, please come up and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about it. But both are true. God's, the God's in control, hardening, and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And because of the hardening of his heart, verse 4 says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And you would ask, why, God, would you do this? Why would you harden his heart so he would not listen to you? Well, it says this, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God is going to display great acts of judgment. He's going to show the world that he is a holy and just God. A God that judges, and yes, a God that is wrathful towards sin. He's also setting up a showdown between Egypt and its false gods and him as Israel's true God. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast... Um, down his staff before Pharaoh and his, um, and his servants, and it became a serpent. This word serpent just means large reptile. It probably was a large snake. Verse 11, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For, much, or for each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's um, staff swallowed their staffs. Wise men, sorcerers, and magicians did the same. I'm guessing they performed a trick like an optical illusion, but this could be demonic power of some sort. Either way, verse 13 says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord said. Because Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he would not listen. So, chapter 7 through chapter 12, we will uh, see that God is going to show Pharaoh his power, and who he is. By amazing and dreadful displays of power. Ten devastating plagues. Each plague probably uh, signifies one of the deities Egypt worships, showing that there is only one God, and he is Lord. And each time we're going to see Pharaoh's heart harden. Harden a little bit more. We're going to see Pharaoh grab truth and suppress it. This is talked about in Romans 1.18, the suppression of the truth, that it's obvious that there's a God out there, so obvious that to deny that there's a God, you have to suppress the truth that's in your face. It's like getting a ball, like a basketball, going in the pool and trying to push it down in the water, and it's slipping and hitting you in the face and grabbing it and pushing it again. This is the truth of God. It's so obvious as you suppress it, it hits you in the face, and you have to push it down again, and it hits you in the face. Well, Pharaoh's going to get hit in the face ten different times with ten different plagues. And each time, he'll suppress the truth. The first plague is the Nile to blood. This is chapter 7, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Pharaoh's probably going out to the water to worship the Nile gods. The main Nile god is um, Hepi. It's it's one of the most powerful gods in Egypt, the false god. It's one of the most powerful because the Nile was a source of life 
It was even said by some Egyptians that the, um, the Nile was the blood that flowed from the gods to give life. Look at verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt and over their rivers, their channels, and their ponds, and all the pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone, even in pots that that people got water and took it home so they had water at home. That became blood. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. I mean, can you imagine this? The Nile is no small river. Verse 22, but... The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. The magicians somehow did the same. Because of this, Pharaoh found a way to suppress the truth. He said, look, the magicians can do it. Therefore, God is not in control. But here's something that... that at least I would question. If the magicians were so powerful, why couldn't they turn the blood back into water. Verse 23. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Verse 25. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Seven full days without water. Yet Pharaoh's heart was still hardened. The second plague was frogs. Chapter 8, verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So many, it says, that they were in the houses and in people's beds. I lived in uh, Ridgecrest for two years, and um, for some reason, there is a lot of roaches in Ridgecrest, or at least around my house. And I would walk across our grass at night, and you could see them, like. And I, our house was converted, um, or at least my room the, was a garage that we converted into a bedroom. And for some reason, I don't know where the roaches got in, but there were roaches in my room all the time. And in the middle of the night, you could kind of hear them go, psh, psh. They have such strong legs. One night, as I was sleeping, I felt something crawling on my leg and grabbed it, and a huge roach in my hand. This says there are so many that they were just on everybody's body. Frogs everywhere. Heket is the goddess that looked like a frog. It's a fertility goddess. And such an important goddess, listen to this, that it was the death penalty to kill a frog in Egypt. I don't know how people walked. Verse 7. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come out on the land of Egypt. And again, I'd ask, if you're so powerful, couldn't you just get rid of the frogs? Verse 8. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, 
Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. I will let Israel go. Just get these frogs out of here. Verse 12, so, Aaron, or so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stunk. Now think about this. If it was a big deal to kill a frog, maybe someone should have told God. Because he just destroyed millions of them. This is God showing Egypt, showing Israel, showing the world that he is God alone. Imagine what the Egyptians were thinking. Heaps and heaps. So much that the the land stunk. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite or a relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. The third plague is gnats. Chapter 8, verse 17. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there was gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Gnats, probably fleas, ticks, or lice. Verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So um, So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Magicians at this point are starting to be more afraid of God than their gods or Pharaoh himself. Second part of verse 19 says, But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh at this point is becoming irrational. I mean, he has been irrational, but now he's becoming really irrational, illogical. He's not thinking through this. He's suppressing the truth to the point of absurdity. To the point of insanity. And it's just a side note. When we suppress the truth, God's truth, because all truth is his truth. When we suppress what the Bible says about reality, we are left only with absurdity and insanity. And this is where our culture is today. Embracing absurdity and insanity. The fourth plague flies. Chapter 8, verse 24. There came a great swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Such a big swarm of flies that the land was ruined. But something was interesting at it. Actually, look back at verse 22. God says in this, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarm of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. I mean, that's power. How do you herd flies from not going into a certain point of the land? So, because of this, Pharaoh begs or bargains with Moses. He says, I'll let your people go, but then verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Fifth plague, livestock disease. This is in chapter 9, verse 2. 
For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall uh, with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Apis is an Egyptian god that looks like a bull. Look at verse 6. And the next day the Lord did uh, this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but no one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. Later on, we see again, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Six plague boils. Verses 8 through 9. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses uh, throw them in the air um, in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Uh, there's a goddess of health called Sekhmet in Egypt, and God is saying here, I am in control of the health. And I love this, verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the um, Egyptians. Yet, even through this, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The seventh plague is hail, chapter 9, look at verse 23. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord uh, rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continuously in the midst of, uh, in the, midst of the hail, very heavy hail such um, as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hell struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hell struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Verse 26 says, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hell. Again, Pharaoh begs for relief, promises freedom, but, verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The eighth plague, Locust, chapter 10, verse 13 So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all the day that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. So many, it says, that you couldn't even see. And and locusts eat everything. And, And it says that what was left by the hail, the locusts ate. Pharaoh again bargains, begs for relief, but verse 19, and the Lord, or, and because of that, verse 19, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which left the locusts um, and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. The ninth plague, darkness. Chapter 10, verse 22. 
So Moses stretched out his hands toward the heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Most of us have heard of the sun god in Egypt, Ra or Re. This was an attack against sin. Look at verse 23. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Now this is dark. They did not even see one another. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. You know, I googled the ten plagues just to see what would pop up. And every single site that popped up, it seemed like, at least like the first ten, was scientists have explained the ten plagues through naturalistic means. There is no naturalistic explanation how there's darkness in one area and complete light right next to it. And the light does not cross over into the darkness. This was a supernatural event. God saying, I am Lord. And there will be light in Goshen for the Israelites. This is a supernatural event. Look at verse 20, 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Here's my question for you. Maybe some of you are asking, hey, why did you go through all of them? Couldn't you just say there's ten plagues? My question is, why did God take the time to go through all this? I mean, this is an all-powerful God. This is the point of this, this, this message, is that he's an all-powerful God. Couldn't he have just been like, Israel's gone now in the promised land? Why go through all this? Well, I think the passage clearly says the reason he went through all this is because God was bombarding Pharaoh with truth. God was saying to Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and again, the world, and to us this morning, that I am Lord alone. And this was judgment and grace. Judgment on Egypt with all the pain and suffering they went through. Grace, because God was revealing truth every single plague. Then we get to the tenth plague, which is chapters 11 and 12. Chapters 11, chapter 11, verse 1 of Exodus says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. This tenth plague is going to work. Pharaoh will let you go. Look at verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about, er, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the, his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. As I'm studying this, I ask, why the firstborn? Well, John MacArthur says, the firstborn held a particularly important position in the family and society, not only inheriting a double portion 
of the father's estate, but also representing special qualities of life and strength. In Egypt, the firstborn would ascend to the throne and continue the dynasty. Therefore, in a sense, the firstborn represented the future of the families of Egypt and the nation of Egypt. It was the nation's future. It was the nation's hope. One commentator said this, When God brought judgment on Egypt, his ultimate punishment was taking the lives of their firstborn. Their firstborn's lives were forfeited because of the sins of the families and the nation. Why? The firstborn son was the family. The firstborn death pointed to judgment on the families and nation's sins. Another commentator said this, In Israel... The dedication of the firstborn was a means of acknowledging the Lord as the provider of life, fertility, and prosperity. By taking the firstborn of both man and beast, Yahweh is again asserting his role to, to be viewed as a deity responsible for life in Egypt, a role usually attributed to Pharaoh. And therefore, judgment fell on the firstborn. Verse 6 chapter 11. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. Why? Well, the second part of verse 7 says, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord, and Israel is mine. Why Israel? Well, we've talked about this before. It's nothing that Israel has done. If you go through the whole Old Testament, Israel is nothing but a pain. It's by grace alone. By the love of God. The love of God. Look at verse 8. And all those, or all this, or these, sorry, and all these, your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? That, he, that his wonders may be multiplied. God's judgment fell on Egypt, which glorifies God. It shows God's power but it also shows God's justice, that he is a just God. This is a hard teaching. But I think there's two concepts about God's justice that can help us see God's justice as glory-filled, glorious. The first concept is this, we want a just God. I mean, just saying unjust God, we don't want an unjust God. We want a just God. The marathon bomber's trial has just happened recently. And I think about this. What if the judge got up at the very end of the trial and said, you know what, I'm a forgiving and gracious judge. You're off the hook. You can go free from right, right here, take the handcuffs off and walk out the door. 
people would be in an outrage. People would say, how could you, could you not administrate justice? This is unjust. That's wrong. I had a young lady once come up to me and say, I don't believe there is a God because, when, uh, because I was abused when I was a little girl and the man got away with it. And she was trying to get this in her head and this was way beyond the point. The guy was gone and there was nothing really we could do. So I said to her, if there isn't a God, then you're right. That man did truly get away with it. But if there is a God then God's justice will make sure his sins are paid for. When he dies, he will face a just God. We want a just God. But you have to add that to the second concept. We have no idea how bad our sins truly are. We think God's justice is too harsh when we read the Old Testament. If we truly understand how bad our sins are, then the, then the teachings of judgment wouldn't be hard to understand. It's not hard to, to picture Hitler in hell. If we understood how awful our sins are, then what would be hard to understand is the grace God gives to anyone. God, how could you be so gracious? How, how could you be so forgiving? How could you forgive me? When it comes to the Exodus, if we understood sin for what it truly is, we would be we wouldn't be or we would be asking, why didn't you judge Israel too? The ten plagues make sense. The grace on Israel doesn't. I heard R.C. Sproul say once. If we truly understood how awful mankind's rebellion is, we wouldn't be asking why there is so much suffering in the world. We would be asking why is there so little? Why have you blessed us so much? Look at verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Moses, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So judgment will fall on the firstborn. Judgment on Egypt and grace to Israel. And here's my question for that. How does Israel get grace? How does Israel get grace? Well, verse, or chapter 12 answers that. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make um, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. The answer is a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb that Israel is going to kill. 
Why? Well, two reasons. This lamb represented a payment for the sins that, that Israel deserved the punishment this lamb's getting. The death of Israel was a payment, or death of the lamb was a payment for Israel's sins. It represented that. But two, it pointed to the true lamb of God. It pointed to Jesus. Jesus was the perfect, unblemished lamb. Jesus was killed for our sins. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb pointed to the true Lamb of God. This is how Israel was saved. Faith in the mercy and grace of God, that their sins would be paid for somehow. And this is where we see the love of God. That he would send his own son to pay the price we deserve. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Look at verse 7, chapter 12. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Just make this real clear. God is saying, when I see the blood of the Lamb on the door, my judgment will not fall on you, my grace will. If I don't see the blood of the Lamb on the door, My grace will not fall on you. My judgment will. Skip to verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all of the the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. This time, Pharaoh let them go. Here's the point. God will be glorified as Lord, either in his justice or in his mercy and grace. Because God is both 100% just and 100% merciful. And there's only two types of people in the world. Those with the justice of God over their head and those with the grace of God over their head. For those that are saved, the justice of God, the wrath of God was poured out on the Passover lamb. It was poured out on Christ so that the mercy of God can be given to them. Christ is our Passover lamb. If you put, or if you have put, 
your trust and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, then God's judgment will pass over you and you will receive grace. If you haven't put your trust and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, God's grace will pass over you and you will receive judgment. And if we can get ready to take communion. God, after this event, after these ten plagues, after the last plague, commanded Israel to celebrate this event once a year. It was a Passover feast to remember what God did in Egypt for Israel. Until Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, celebrated the last official Passover feast. Then, he started a new feast that replaced the old. The Passover feast was replaced by the Lord's Supper. The Passover celebration looked back to remember God's salvation with Israel coming out of Egypt, but it also looked forward to the true Passover lamb, which was Christ. The Lord's Supper looks back at that Passover lamb and what he did for us on the cross. The Passover celebration was a celebration. And the the Lord's Supper is a celebration. As we confess our sins in a moment of silence here, we are celebrating that those sins are forgiven and we should have joy knowing that God will one day reveal himself in a terrifying way to sinners like us and say to those that are saved, fear not. You are loved. This is a celebration. Let's take a moment of silence to confess our sins as the men come forward. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Dear heavenly, holy, gracious God, we thank you, Lord for making a way that we can have a relationship with you, knowing that you're a just God and that you you have to, in your nature, punish sin. You have sent your Son to be the punishment of sin, Lord, that your punishment, our punishment will go on his back, Lord. God, as we take communion, I pray that we celebrate that. We are so thankful and full of joy for what you have done for us. God, I pray that you you give our church a reverence for who you are. 
that we submit to your lordship, Lord, that we, we look in every aspect of our life and ask ourselves, where am I not submitting to God as Lord? But I also, Lord, pray that we have the confidence to go to you knowing that you have offered grace and you have forgiven our sins and that we know you love us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.